Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. The National Guard airmen arrested today for the FBI for that alleged leak of highly classified Pentagon documents was just 21 years old. His name is Jack Teixeira, and he's described in The Washington Post as a lonely but charismatic gun enthusiast who was allegedly the leader of a chat room on Discord. That's a social media platform popular with gamers. We'll have more details on this in a moment, but does this story give us some insight into what's going on with young men who spend a lot of time online? Plus, you know we ring the artificial intelligence alarm on this show often. Well, the latest frontier is creating fake versions of famous people, like this completely fake Joe Rogan interviewing a completely fake Donald Trump. How you doing, Mr. President? Joe, it's great to be here. I'm doing fantastic, just fantastic. The energy in this room is tremendous. That's great to hear. So, Mr. President, I got to ask you, are you a fan of the UFC? Joe, let me tell you, I love the UFC. It's one of the most exciting sports out there. It's not for everyone, but if you're a fan, there's nothing like it. Okay, we'll play more of that. And Mike Rowe is here tonight to share his deepest, darkest fear about AI. And the raging controversy over beer and baseball. As the games get shorter, some teams are selling beer later. And tonight, one major leaguer is not happy about that. Now you're putting our fans and our family at risk driving home with people who have just drank beer 22 minutes ago. We'll get into all of that. But let's bring in tonight's panel. We have with us Emma Goldberg, star reporter of The New York Times. We also have our pal and TV star, Mike Rowe, star of The Daily Show, Jordan Klepper and star of CNN, Sean Parker Post. Great to see all of you. Okay, Jordan, can we start with this? First, let, let me just show the arrest today, the dramatic arrest of this 21-year-old who had access somehow to all of these classified documents, and the FBI descended upon his home. Uh, he was clearly surprised. He's not dressed for uh, an arrest like this. And, you know, you can see this show of force. And I, I just wonder, do you see this as an anomaly, or do you see this as saying something bigger about a 21-year-old guy who's on Discord online talking to fellow, you know, gun enthusiasts and sharing all of these secrets? Yeah, well, I mean, it's harrowing images. It's it's hard, you know, as information's still coming in. I don't want to weigh in too heavily about who this man is. I do think, though, I get a chance to talk to a lot of people out there, and I see young men struggling in this country. Uh, they're not doing great in school, not doing great with jobs. Uh, and when I talk to people at rallies I go to, I see this whole, this, this space that is needed for both community and for meaning. And so hearing stories about people who struggle during the pandemic, finding communities online, um, perhaps looking for that meaning, looking for that uh, sense of purpose and finding that in wayward places, uh, it hurts when you're fed grievance and then awash in misinformation. And so it feels like if those were part of the, part of the soup that this came out of, it makes sense. Do you have a sense of why young men are struggling? Well, I mean, I think it's tough out there right now. Uh, I think there's a lot of loneliness. COVID didn't help any of that. Uh, They're not getting good, clean information. You can escape. I think I know what it's like to be a teenage boy. I remember it. I wasn't very good at it, to be quite honest with you. Uh, If I had an escape in my basement where I could have somebody tell me that I'm good at something, that I belong to something else, and then I could seek out information that could make my worldview seem like the ultimate worldview— I would lack curiosity to expand that worldview. I would double down on the things I already thought I felt, and I'd try to impress those closest around me. And, and I, I see that in our, our kids these days, and I think 
if you don't have a culture that makes an effort to try to support those kids, and instead you have a culture that might prey on those vulnerabilities and might flood them again with this misinformation, that's a tough time to make sense of the world. You know, I think that you're hitting on something, and Shimon, 100%. Absolutely, because the people who describe him, he he not only had a purpose, he was the leader of this group, and they describe him as charismatic. Let me just play for you one member who wanted to be anonymous but talked about how, you know, they saw him as their sort of fearless leader. So listen to this. Of course, there's some anti-government sentiment, but that's not unlike most right-wingers in the modern day and age. OG was not hostile to the U.S. government. However, he had disagreed with several occasions such as Waco and Ruby Ridge and thought that the government is overreaching in several aspects. So they refer to him as OG. That's That was his name online. He was the leader. I mean, I think Jordan hit it 100%. He was the leader of this group. It, it, it gave him a purpose. He puts this group together around the pandemic. And then sometime after that is to get them more interested in him to get him more interested in what he has to say, he starts sharing this information according to his friends or now his former friends, and he's sharing this information. And so this group, it's formed on Discord, uh, and the name of it is, I think we just had it up on the screen. It's called a Thug, I have it in my oh, notes. Oh yeah, here. I know. It- it's, it's Thug Shaker Central is the name of this group. And he forms this group, he's running it, he's the leader, it's about 20 to 30 members. And it's all about video games at first, right? But there's a love of guns. There's, they're talking about uh, racial issues, his anti-government views. And so this is all starts around the pandemic. And he starts feeding them information. So what he's doing is he's, he's sitting in this room, perhaps, on the military base where he has access to all of these classified intelligence bulletins and information about the wars and what the military is doing. And he's sharing all this information and they're like, wow, how cool is this? But then at some point, they're like, yeah, we don't want to know about this. We don't want to. And he gets upset that they're not interested. And so he kind of gets tired of writing all this down. So he starts taking photos of the information. And then from there, it all starts to unravel. And what he thought he was just sharing with a small, tight-knit group of friends, his followers, the people in that group started realizing what they had. And they started sharing it outside of that group. And that's how all of this starts to unravel. Mike, how do you see it? I'm with Jordan. You know, it's the meaning thing. You know, I, I, I think, he, look, he did a very bad thing. He shared classified documents. Go to jail, go directly to jail. You're not going to pass go. You screwed up. Um, but the fact that he was 21, the fact that he liked guns, the fact that all these other things, I, I don't find them personally to be a dispositive you know, I spent uh, I spent a few weeks not long ago on a on a nuclear aircraft carrier, and I got to hang out on the bridge. And I was talking to the captain, who was younger than me, who went around the room and introduced me to the guy in charge of the nuclear engines, who was 22, and the woman in charge of like the entire mess. Right, it was like 5,000 people. That ship was filled with 21-year-old gun enthusiasts, right? So I'd just be real careful about painting with a broad brush. The only thing that I would take from this that I'm comfortable saying globally is the meaning thing. The young men today feel untethered and unmoored. And older men, I'm afraid, aren't so different. Nick Eberstadt has a great book where he talks about it. It's called uh, Men Without Work. 7.2 million 
able-bodied men in the prime of their life, not only not working, but affirmatively not looking for work. We have never seen that in this country outside of war. Never in peacetime have we seen this going on. So I'm not saying there is something about the screen. There is something about the search for meaning. But there's not much that I can say about a 21-year-old gun enthusiast. Yeah, and I don't mean to suggest that because he's a gun enthusiast, he became uh, a national security risk. I mean that this is what bonded them on Discord. This is what they, how, why Maybe. these guys came together. They liked military equipment. They liked gun. I saw one um, report where they liked God. And then I also saw some reports where it said that they engaged in racist memes. So whatever. I'm just telling you what they found in their connection. Not that any of that means you would steal nuclear secret or whatever. Of national course. Secrets. Of course. But look, you put it on the screen and people look at the screen and people's brains. They they'll find what you tell them to look for and they'll start to connect the dots. Go back two weeks. Look at Nashville, the transgender shooting. Well, wait a second. We don't want to connect any dots there. I don't think we should. Right. But. It's interesting what we put on the screen, and it's interesting what we hang on to. I do want to say, I mean, I think we do need to think about the platform. I mean, Discord is a platform that's been called like a cousin of 4chan, which is a hotbed of conspiracy theories of QAnon. And this isn't an isolated incident. Discord was connected to um, the shooter who went into a grocery store in Buffalo and killed 10 people. It was connected to the Unite the Right rally. So this is a platform that has been a hotbed of conspiracy theories of racist memes. And still uh, what the platform is relying on, uh, on to flag problematic content is just individual users to a large extent. So that's, you know, I think another troubling issue that we need to examine here. Yeah, it is interesting that the, his friends on there are now speaking out because they're, I guess, troubled. But they're tr- Perhaps they're troubled. Perhaps um, they didn't realize how bad this was. And maybe somehow they're trying to save themselves. And not that, they're, that, that they have any kind of issue to worry about. But certainly there is that. I'm sure some of them are worried uh, about it. But the thing about this is that, look, Yes, it's a huge embarrassment for this country because, I mean, where else does this happen, right? And what other countries do we see this? And we've had so many instances of this. But what's different about this guy is that when you look at Snowden or you look at Chelsea Manning, you know, they had a purpose in their mind for why they were doing it. They were doing it because they wanted to wrong a right. They were doing it for some kind of social justice. This guy is just doing it to be cool. Um, you know, he's got these friends sitting around, and that's what's kind of a little confusing. And I think that, to your point about what is going on uh, in his head and, and others, um, that's what makes this so strange. Yeah, except that, as these guys have said, it makes perfect sense if you're a 21-year-old guy yes. who wants to impress your posse that, you know, I mean, not that not that everybody commits crimes, but you can understand the impulse of wanting to impress them. And I think there is something to, you know, the conspiratorial mindset. I'm not saying that was this 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 man's uh, mindset, but I do know there's something, spent some time in that world there's something special when you feel you know a secret somebody else doesn't yeah. know. That uh, is the fact, man. That, that is exciting. One other quick thing, too. We're all, I think, reasonable people on international TV. We're not going to say anything other than this is a very bad thing that happened. But out in the world, over a beer, people sit down and they start talking about Snowden or maybe Chelsea Manning or maybe Jeffrey Wigand, who the insider, right, with Big Tobacco or Aaron Brockovich, right? So what is a whistleblower? What is a leaker? You know, are they a patriot or are they a traitor, right? The conversations I think that I bet will go on after this segment are going to be, let me lick my finger and stick it in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. And then I'll decide how to feel about this guy. Yeah, well, some people, you know, I was talking to friends today, watching the video of him being arrested. 
people actually feel bad for him. Um, You know, I had a couple of friends who said to me, I actually feel bad for him because there's also video that of him sitting in his yard before the FBI, like the news helicopters and the reporters had already been at the home just as the FBI was arriving, maybe even before. And there's video of him just sitting in his yard looking over some paper. But doesn't that also just raise the question of why does a 21-year-old who was, you know, by all accounts, like a, um, an IT guy? He's a tech whiz. He really okay, was. tech whiz. Yeah. But still, why, does, why is he able to have access to our so national... So he's computers? a systems engineer. He's yeah. making sure those systems on those computers that they're using to transmit this information. This is a base that deals with drones overseas. This is a base that deals with uh, cybersecurity and all kinds of in- spying right? And intelligence work. He runs those systems. And so he has to have access to this information. The question is, how is he vetted, of course, and what is going on at the Pentagon? And this is really bad for them. For the Pentagon, this is really, really bad. All right, friends, thank you very much. Shimon, you'll be back in our next hour along with other reporters to give us tomorrow's news tonight. Okay, and coming up next, more freaky artificial intelligence fakes that sound very real. And Mike Rowe shares his deepest fear. If he is. I hope that was Mike. I hope that you're pointing. You're not the real Mike. Uh, Now for our latest look into artificial intelligence, we bring you Joe Rogan, but not the real Joe Rogan, the fake AI Joe Rogan. You're about to hear a podcast where all the dialogue was created by ChatGPT. This episode is a fake interview with fake Joe Rogan interviewing an AI-generated fake Donald Trump. How you doing, Mr. President? Joe, it's great to be here. I'm doing fantastic, just fantastic. The energy in this room is tremendous. That's great to hear. So, Mr. President, I got to ask you, are you a fan of the UFC? Joe, let me tell you, I love the UFC. It's one of the most exciting sports out there. It's not for everyone, but if you're a fan, there's nothing like it. Again, that was entirely fake. (laughs) Joe Rogan responded to this AI-generated podcast saying, quote, this is going to get very slippery, kids. I'm back with my panel, and joining us is Mo Shmanunu, host of the Mo News Podcast. Great to have you. Great to be here. Okay, so, uh, Mike, this really worries you. Oh, yeah. Why? (laughs) Look, I mean, in general... You know, I've read about the Luddite Rebellion, and I know about the fear people have of new tech, and I know what happened with the Gutenberg printing press and how Henry VIII tried to burn them all to stop, you know. So in general, I'm not, I'm not worried about big tech. This, this worries me to death. Deep fakes worry me. The ability to take fraud to a whole new level is just shocking. And I mean, somebody's already um, taken liberties with your likeness. Not even with this crazy tool. But five years ago, my dad sent me a note asking me about my problems in the boudoir. <laughs> you, you were in a fake ad. Well, a real ad, but a fake you, and I believe we have it, oh. was in an ad about erectile dysfunction. So that's my picture. That's really me. But it's not just an ad. It's an interview oh. with me that I didn't do. Somebody just made, and it sounds like me talking very candidly about my inability and my frustration to shoot and pull with a rope, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. (laughs) And they get into all these details, and some of it's kind of funny, but overall, it's deeply humiliating. And when your dad calls you at home to ask you questions 
like that. Like how you're doing with that. So I take a deep dive and I find the thing and trying to get it removed from the internet. I mean, it's truly like a game of whack-a-mole, if you'll pardon the pun, right? I mean, it's things just pops up everywhere and you knock it down. So look, that's six years ago. This bold new world, if you, the fraud that's happening online right now, identity theft in and of itself, yeah. what is this going to do to that? It's going to be an accelerant, I think, unlike anything we've ever seen. And Rogan's right. It's not going to get slippery. It's slippery now. Mosh, how are we ever going to know what's real? That's the problem, right? We already have a problem with truth in this country and in this world. And this is only going to reinforce that, right? Like, we as journalists will find clips of, you know, politicians saying something. Now they can be like, that was, that's AI. No way that was me. So there are real ramifications. You know, uh, the, the Russia-China summit that happened recently in Moscow, among the things discussed between Xi Jinping and Putin was AI. How do we lead the world in AI? And, you know, now I think here in the U.S., the Biden administration has said the Commerce Department is opening it up for comments for the next 60 days. All of us can write into the Commerce Department right now for our thoughts on AI. That's where we're at. The Italians, meanwhile, a couple of weeks ago said we're pausing ChatGPT in the country. It is banned until you fix some stuff. The Italians are far ahead of us in terms of dealing with this. So there are real things happening. And then the tech companies are like, we're not stopping. The Microsoft CEO this week said full speed ahead on ChatGPT. Why would we stop? If you want to regulate us, regulate us. So it falls on the government, like many things, to put a pause on this, potentially. Jordan, your likeness is out there. Have you ever been the subject of a humiliating ad campaign? Oh, boy, I would take it gladly. Are you kidding? <laughs> the residuals on something like that? Also, I'm crestfallen to know that uh, a erectile dysfunction interview isn't true. I mean, <laughs> Listen. I mean, maybe there's a world where, like, you speaking candidly about this kind of thing is the micro that we want. That maybe the technology is projecting a future us, the kind of person we could become if we sure. become open with ourselves yeah. and willing to share with other people our deficiencies, our inadequacies, you know, theoretically, too soon. Simply too soon. I think this is, it's going to take time for us to become comfortable (laughs) with the the new reality that we're about to be born into. Thank you for all that. Um, Very touching. Um, Emma, have you been the subject of an embarrassing uh, advertisement? Never. And I don't want to tempt fate, Um, (laughs) but I do think it's, I mean, it's really scary, uncharted terrain. One of my colleagues at the Times recently published the full transcript of a chat he had with um, Bing's AI chatbot, who he asked to tap into its shadow self. And it suddenly started trying to break up his marriage and profess some really violent fantasies. Yes, we interviewed him. It was so creepy. The thing took on a life of its own and was like, you love me more than your wife, don't you? Leave her. What was that? And it was like a snap. Like, it was like, oh, no, don't ask me to do that. And then all of a sudden it was like, never mind. Okay, like, we're going there. And I think that just shows, like, we're already there. Like, yes, we need regulation, but I think we also need to teach individual people how to recognize when they're dealing with, you know, fake material, fake interviews with Mike. But I don't know how we're ever going to teach people to do that. just me. (laughs) Hey, silver lining. I I think she's right. If you believe, as I do, that the crisis of credibility with our institutions has to get a little worse before it gets better. If you, if you believe that the individual has to embrace a new level of skepticism and thought, then this will be a wake-up call because you, the default is going to become not, well, of course they're telling me the truth. Why would they lie? The default is going to become, well, of course they're lying. Why would they tell me Except the truth? Except that I feel like the people who need it the most are the most susceptible, like the most Always. easily duped. Of course. So they will believe this without skepticism. I have faith that... Some, unfortunately, 
will never come around, but many, many will. We still have an opportunity, I think, to challenge the fat part of the bat in this country. Most people should look at everything and anything with a grain of salt, right? They should they should be more skeptical, I believe. Look, that Joe Rogan thing that we just played with Donald Trump, that sounded sort of robotic. I mean, that one, you could be like, mm, something's not right about that. But they're going to get I've better. Seen better ones. They're going to be better next week. Yeah. Next week, they'll be better. And what's it going to do to porn? Oh, my God. Oh, yes. Thank you for bringing that what up. What is it going to do? That, it, I'll tell you what it's going to do because it's already doing it. They're taking famous people. <laughs> You're next. You're next. They're taking famous people and putting famous people into pornographic um, videos and this, situations. That is what technology is for. This is, of course, that's what this we're doing. This is stuff that you guys have been doing, working really hard at The Daily Show for years. Technology Are you kidding? When I was 13, I was visualizing a reality where I was seeing famous people in pornographic images. And now here it is. And now we're finally here. Yeah. Well, Hoorah, America, greatest country on the planet. People are going to fall in love. They're going to fall in love with a cipher. Absolutely. With an avatar. Already did. What was the movie? Her? Yeah. Her. That's, that, yeah. We're there. Yeah. Some pronoun. Who knows yeah. anymore, really? And that yeah. guy turned into the Joker, so it can get yeah. dark quick. The future is now. It's happening. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Thank you for all of that. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets in France today to protest their government's plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. In Paris alone, more than 40,000 people protested, some, as you can see, clashing with police officers. Smoke bombs, projectiles, tear gas were all used there and fired. And my panel is back with me. Um, Emma, people really don't want to work two more years. Not in France. (laughs) In America, they're like, bring it on. I mean, I do think there's a lot of reasons why what's going on there is so distinct to France. Why? One being the fact that they do have a very different relationship with work-life balance than Americans do. I mean, all you have to do is send an email to a European person in August to know that, like, they really take vacation seriously. But I also think that the the prospect of raising the retirement age in America is a very different ballgame because the elder po- the elder population is, um, to a large extent, lower income, um, lesser educated, doesn't have the health and um, ability or life expectancy to work as long as. Um, um, you know, in some other countries. So the prospect of raising the retirement age in order to ensure that people can access all those benefits, it, it doesn't necessarily gain out politically or economically. Here's uh, some stats from Gallup for us in the U.S. The average retirement age is 61. Limited social security benefits begin at 62. Life expectancy is 76. Mike, what's the right age to retire at? I, I mean, retire from what? I mean, I can't I like what I do. I work every day. My work-life balance is, is a joke, but I, but I really do love what I do. And uh, my foundation, you know, we, we have the scholarship program, and we call them work ethic scholarships because I think it's an important part of the conversation. I don't care about France. I don't know what to say, 62, 64. That's out of my lane. But here, you know, we've got scholarships for academic achievement, for athletic achievement, scholastic, uh, artistic, you know, the idea of rewarding work ethic and talking about it as a thing you can consciously choose to show up early, to stay late, to do all that Horatio Alger stuff that nobody wants to hear about anymore, but is still a really important part, I think, that goes back to the first segment, too. Why is that kid sitting there looking for meaning? You know, what does his desk look like at the end of the day? You know, the people that I work with, by and large, they know how they're doing all day long. 
you get a dirty job, you get constant feedback, right? Constant feedback. And because you see the product of what you're doing. You see the results. You see of the what you're progress, doing. right? And so not to go on a rant about it, but good grief. I mean, that's, that's the problem, 62 to 64 to, I, I'm sorry. I, I think in this country right now, the biggest issue is the war that we've declared collectively on work and the way we've turned it into the proximate cause of every single ailment that we have. And I think it's silly. I was just going to add, I do think that exactly what you're talking about, I think that the kind of disaffection and dissatisfaction with labor right now is feeding into this. It's, we're seeing that in the U.S. with the Great Resignation, yep. uh, with, you know, all sorts of trends in which people are rejecting labor conditions that they don't want or like. And I think we're seeing that in France. Well, you're right also. about that, right? Quiet quitting and working from exactly. home. And what is it? Mail it in Mondays now or whatever they're I've never in. heard that before. It's coming. <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> I know. It's, it's trending on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the problem we have is that our pension system, Social Security, is based on young workers, right? That's the entire calculation. The problem they have in France, it's 1.7 young workers for retiree. In the U.S., we're three to one right now. So, like, we're great compared to them. And so they're running out of money for their pensioners. And by the way, when you're in France, a quarter of your life you spend in retirement. The average uh, retiree in France, richer than the average worker. So that's why retirement is such a big deal there. That's fascinating. Go. I'm focused on retirement. I think my, I've been working hard so I can retire and stop working as fast as humanly what possible. What is the average age of retirement for a comedian? For a comedian? I usually you quit your improv class at 27. That's what, that's what they tend to do. And, and I get it. I, I, I agree with Mike, and I understand that. I couldn't get all the way through Horatio Alger, but I, I do think... I do think, to me, a productive society, uh, we should be working towards a four-day work week. We should be working towards working less. It's amazing that we're working as many hours as we did 80 years ago. What is progress for if you can't have margaritas at 4 o'clock? That, to me, is the evolution we should be working for. And I do think there is something, and I think it's an interesting conversation around the first segment and that, that sense of meaning. And I do think work... Uh, work gives you a sense of pride in what you do. But I think you have a younger generation that has also been sold larger institutional lies, and they're finding themselves upset by not being as fulfilled in some of the jobs that they have or in some of the missions that they've been given. And so I do think it's a delicate balance, but I wish we could have an open conversation in this country about how work is something you can do to spend more time with the things and the people that you love. And, and sometimes ambition is seen as just a virtue, as opposed to Google's excuse for you not to feel bad not being home with your toddler. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, look. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me one of these, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I was your age. There so. we go. No, look, I mean, again, I don't think, I think the danger is singing from the book of platitudes. I think what you say makes a lot of sense for a bunch of people. And I think it's exactly what another bunch of people really don't need to hear. It's like telling, it's like telling, well, we did it. We told an entire generation that the best path for the most people was a four-year degree. At the same time, we took shop class out of high school. The result of doing that is $1.7 trillion in outstanding student loans and 11.5 million jobs that can't be filled right now that don't require a four-year degree. Ergo, we continue to lend money we don't have to kids who are never going to be able to pay it back, training them for jobs that don't exist anymore. Of course, they're miserable, right? So, yeah, the bigger issue, in my view, starts with work being a four-letter word. Why are we so, why, why are we trained to run from it? And why are the portrayals 
on, on TV over and over and over. Look at a skilled, look at a plumber. Five will get you 10. He's 300 pounds with a giant butt crack hanging out, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're trained to see. Yeah. They're always the punchline of a joke. They're always somehow subordinate. A trade school has turned into some kind of vocational consolation prize. It's the thing you do if you can't do this, right? So we got our thumb on the scale, and we've created a lot of these problems on our own. Work ethic all by itself is not the problem or the solution, but it's an ingredient in the cake. But do you like the idea of a four-day work week? I'm not opposed to it. I mean, it depends what I'm doing on the other three, to be honest with you. (laughs) I'm not sure retirement's that great. Most people I know who are retired, I look at them, I kind of admire the idea, but I don't I don't much envy their life. Oh, and the other thing, at the risk of sounding all classist and stuff, is can you afford to retire? I mean, if you can, then it's none of my business. Fine, get out of it. But again, if we've got policies in place that are affirmatively encouraging more people to work less, then we're going to reap some sort of whirlwind, some down. Well, wait, we. Oh, sorry. This is Mike's wheelhouse, by the way. Oh, sorry, <laughs> that was me. I'm just hogging up all this. I'll but I think, quiet. like, a, 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 an argument for like AI right now is that it can be, it can, it can help accentuate people who need an assistant, need that knowledge base, need need an accelerant who might not normally have it. It might That's be privilege at, at its right. best form. It may be privilege. Uh, for folks who don't have those types of privileges to do work better. And I wish that we were having more conversations about doing work better so our life isn't work. Our, our work helps give us life. That might have been a platitude, and I know you don't want me speaking from no, those. No, it was lovely. It felt- <laughs> you sold it in a rich, well-modulated baritone. I'm hanging on every word. Thank you very much. Mush, last I mean- word. To Mike's point, I'm the son of a cabinet maker, grew up in his cabinet shop. We have a shortage of carpenters in this country. We have a shortage of plumbers in this country. We have a shortage of electricians in this country. And there needs to be a respect for that work. And by the way, my dad recently retired. Would love to be working full time. Still trying to figure out what to do in retirement. Is that right? I get it. Give him my regards. (laughs) He's watching. Friends, thank you very much. And be sure to stick around for the top of the hour because our favorite CNN reporters will be here to dive into the stories that they've been covering, including the one and only Harry Enten who's got new polling that shows more Americans are fed up with defining themselves by their jobs. But first, how much are you willing to pay for a piece of nostalgia? What about $28,000? That's what one Rocky VHS tape got. We'll explain next. That's what movies used to look like before they had to be really fast. (laughs) I did see Cocaine Bear. Yeah, that, that was Cocaine Bear. Cocaine Bear. Cinema. Cinema. Same thing. Very, very similar. Um, that was fantastic. Rocky. Remember back when you went to see movies in the movie theater? Then there was this amazing invention called Blockbuster. Mm. And you got to go rent a movie. And in an effort to capture that nostalgia, one person purchased a factory-sealed copy of Rocky for $27,500 at an auction. And that was not the only high-ticket VHS tape for sale. My panel is back with me now. Okay, uh, $28,000 for a Rocky VHS. Who would buy it? 
Who would pay? No. Am I retired in this scenario? <laughs> <laughs> Am I getting the French retirement package? Yeah, yeah, American retirement like, package. Um, I feel like I have a Rocky VHS somewhere at home that I could just go find and sell. I, I, mean, I, I think that story is just sending everybody to their VHS yeah. collection to be like, I have one in here. If I can get 500 bucks gold for mine. it. Right? Yeah. I, Jaws. I'm rich. I think so. I'm going to go home and look. But okay, but it's about nostalgia, obviously. Um, so who, would you, are you a nostalgic person? No, uh, but years ago I worked at QVC oh. and I sold oh. dubious things in the middle of the night. Oh, really? Yeah, for three That's years. That's funny because we have um, some tape of that. Shut we up. We have a clip of that. <laughs> Let's take a look. That's not cool. <gasps> Back to, uh, was oh, this the 60s or no. the 70s? Well, when, when were lava lamps hot, Jeff? Oh. 60s oh or God. 70s? Look at that hair. Look at your hair. Jeff's not sure. I'm not really sure either. They seem to be a, uh, a part of our culture, but <laughs> often imitated. The lamp is a little warm. <laughs> Not unlike lava. Oh, so my right, God, I Mike, was, what's I, happening there? I was fired three times from QVC. <laughs> you know, lava. That's not easy. No, the lava, well, I did take it apart That's to really lava. see what made it, you know, the if there was real magic. Is that why you were fired? No, no, no. There, there were many other stories. The point is, <laughs> the collectors on QVC, coins, stamps, and dolls, right? Okay. People collect things. Dolls, yes, I've heard. In droves, and like in ways that I never really totally understood. And it is, it's not just nostalgia. The Germans have a word for it, um, it virtschmaltz. So it's sentiment combined with nostalgia, oftentimes for a time or period that you didn't actually live through. Like, this is why... Some people have the standards, right? Today, the music of the 40s and 50s. Yes. Anyway. Mike, there's, I, I, okay, I feel like you're distracting us. There's so much to unpack in that QVC thing from yeah, the lava so lamp to your panelists, hair. So many other people. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so many other people waiting to wait. You're so in. right. We don't have time. Uh, gentlemen, are you nostalgic? I am not nostalgic. I, I think nostalgia is like mushrooms, you know? Like, you should do it every once in a while for a fun trip, but <laughs> if you do it all the time, it'll it wreck your brain. Your uh, I, I mean, I, I love revisiting the past. I just think we are a culture that is so obsessed with it. I, I have a little kid right now, and it breaks my heart that I know he's going to be a Star Wars fan. And I liked Star Wars as a kid, but like for that story to take up the mind space over 40 to 50 years, it's like, can we not be writing new stories? Like, why can't my child have a new story arc and not have to be told the same saga? Well, I mean, they around- can do Harry Potter. What? They can have Harry Potter. They can have Harry Potter. Take that. Uh, I guess he can have Harry. That, that's a whole new complicated issue as well now, too. That's I'll true. have to explain J.K. Rawlings and why she's dying on this cross. It doesn't make any sense. So I think that's where I get, I get up to. I'm like, oh, Super Mario Brothers, the number one movie in America today. Great. I'm glad we have such a plethora of new stories to tell. Mosh? Not nostalgia, but I, have, I love history. I'm a history nerd. So I actually, in our... Um, in our home, we have uh, Life magazines, like classic Life magazines from the 50s and 60s, which is very cool, like showing the like... Uh, very cool. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jordan. It's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. It's definitely it's a, a thing. thing. It's definitely a thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, so I have a thing. You have a thing. That's it. Yeah, continue. And, and also as a Chicago sports fan, collecting kind of the front pages of the very few championships that we've won through history. <laughs> yes. We had Nat Geo, actually. That's right. Naked Pygmies. Yeah, I, I remember, and that was hot. Um, uh, Emma, are you nostalgic for, like, 2018? Like, what, what is nostalgic? <laughs> early aughts. Early aughts. Clueless. Yes. I, would pay, I would buy a Clueless VHS you would? if they had that. For how mean much? Girls? <laughs> uh, 50 bucks. <laughs> Can I pawn it off for more? I don't know. That's awesome. I am very nostalgic. I'm a very nostalgic person. And today, even before I knew that we were doing this segment, I wore this shirt into 
into work just because I wear this shirt and I brought it up from my closet to show you guys. Like, this is how nostalgic I am that I still oh. wear stuff like this. Yeah, yeah. See what I mean? I love that. I'll and buy I that. For, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the rumor that went around KISS, what, what, it, what they said it stood for? No. Is Night, it dirty? Knights in the service of Satan. <laughs> it was a, it was, to, it was total AI nonsense yeah. before there was AI. Before but, there was AI. Yeah, not true. Well, scary. So nice shirt, though. Oh, thank you. All right. Stay tuned. Some major league baseball teams are extending beer sales, but not everyone's on board, including one Phillies pitcher. We've got the booze news next. In today's booze news, Philadelphia pitchers, um, Philadelphia Phillies pitcher, I'll get through this, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Strom weighing in on some Major League Baseball teams' decision to extend their beer sales through the eighth inning. The reason we stopped it in the seventh before was to give our fans time to sober up and drive home safe, correct? Correct, yes. So now with a faster-paced game, and me just being a man of common sense, if the game is going to finish quicker, would we not move the beer sales back to the sixth inning to give our fans time to sober up and drive home? Instead, we're going to the eighth, and now you're putting our fans and our family at risk driving home with people who have just drank beer 22 minutes ago. I'm not surprised, Matt, but you're at... I'm not surprised either. When you mess with billionaires' dollars, they, uh, they find a way to make their dollars back. Hmm. Back with me, Jordan Klepper and Mike Rowe. You're both beer drinkers, yes? Indeed. Mm. Uh, you too, Mike? You know, I'm doing the carb thing, but I've been known. To You've been known to have And if we're, if we're putting our cards on the table, I do struggle with gout occasionally. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Mike and I are really cool with uh, It's not beer. the itching, it's the chafing. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. But other than that, yep, just dudes who like Thank beer. You. Okay, got it. Um, what is the right time to stop drinking beer on any night? Because that's what they're debating. <laughs> Whether it's the eighth inning, the seventh inning, the sixth inning, when should people stop drinking their beer? I mean, that was, game? first of all, that's the most sensical man in Philadelphia I have ever heard. Well, a great head of hair, let's be honest. Yes. Really uh, lovely follow. If I'm watching a baseball game, I am drinking all the way through the baseball game. I'm not. I've, I've gone seventh inning. I bought multiple beers. I've taken them back to my seat mm-hmm. uh, because I'm shocked that I've actually stayed at a baseball game <laughs> through seven innings. I was, so you need oh. the beer to get through the baseball. Game. I need the beer to get through the baseball games. God bless. I love all you baseball players, uh, but boy, I need a little help. Mike? I actually do love the game. It's one of the few sports I actually played growing up. I have a great fondness for it. Not terribly good at it, but I do enjoy it more uh, with a couple of beers. Uh, I think the serious point to be made, if there is one, is um, that he seems to be assuming that everybody in the stadium is a, uh, what's the word, a child. Mm-hmm. Just a child. Mm-hmm. Incapable of regulating their own intake of alcohol, incapable of arranging for a rideshare situation, incapable of really applying any measure of responsibility to the business of being a grown-up. So, uh, you know, I'm going to side with the people who are in control of their own decisions and And drink through the whole game. Mm -hmm. If, in fact, that's their jam, assuming they can do responsible things vis-a-vis. All right. Then you both win our our, um, parting gift. Oh. Oh, And because you guys, we know, are walking to your next uh, setting, we have a to-go beer for each other. Wow. A warm (laughs) to-go beer from CNN. How lovely. You're welcome. I was expecting a Bud Light. No. 
Oh, no. See what I did there? I did see what you did there. I saw that. I saw that. Guys, thank you. You're wonderful. You got any American beer? Thank you. No, you're going to drink that. Yeah, this is made by an American company. Is it? Yes. Uh-huh. Don't cool. be fooled by Still the Stella Artois. name. Like yes. Kombucha would be better for my foot to be honest. Next, we have some of our favorite CNN reporters. They're here to give us their biggest scoops. We have new details on the alleged leaker of classified Pentagon documents and the Supreme Court facing a key deadline tomorrow. All that and more. We're going to need, we're gonna need, a, we're gonna need an opener of some kind. Oh, it's not a twist off? No, it's not a twist Oh, we have an opener. We have an opener. We have an opener. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. We've got Shimon Prokupes, Arlette Sines, Harry Enton, and Zane Asher. Great to have all of you with me here tonight. Okay, so let's start with the suspected leaker of a trove of classified Pentagon documents who is now in custody tonight. The FBI arrested 21-year-old National Guardsman Jack Teixeira outside this Massachusetts home. Teixeira was reportedly the leader of a tight-knit online community of gamers, many of them teenagers, with whom he shared these military secrets. Shimon Prokupes has been covering this story for us. So, Shimon, this 21-year-old is now in FBI custody for disseminating top-secret national you know, security documents. So what's going to happen tomorrow here? I mean, just when you look at these pictures of the FBI going to his house in that way, it wasn't supposed to go down like this. Um, it's significant when we see something like this. How was it supposed to go down? I mean, they weren't planning to get him at that moment. And they never make arrests during the day like that. You never get to see them make arrests. You know, it's six in the morning. They come to the house. Either they knock on the, on the door or whatever if they have to take more aggressive measures. But you never see activity. Because they thought he was going to leave? I mean, Well, what? what happened was his name got out there, right? There was a lot of information. And then the New York Times went ahead and published his name. And that just set off a chain of events that we're seeing here today. Indications to us is that perhaps they were planning to arrest him later today uh, when he got to work, or that maybe they were going to wait a little bit. They were still working the case. Um, but look, this is a very significant leak case. The allegations are very serious in that this 21-year-old who had access to all this really sensitive, sensitive intelligence just decided, you know, because he wanted to be cool, just decided he's going to share it with people on this social media platform, Discord. Uh, and that's what he did. And, you know, when you listen to his friends, this group of people describe what it was like and why he was doing it, it's, it's really raises some interesting issues. Take a listen to one of those uh, friends describing uh, th- those events. He was a young, charismatic man who loved nature, God, who loved shooting guns and, and racing cars. He did have sort of a bossy attitude at some points, but it was more of a fatherly bossy. He did see himself as the leader of this group, and he ultimately he was the leader of this group. And he wanted us all to be sort of super soldiers to some degree, informed, fit, with God, well-armed, stuff like that. I mean, they looked up to him. When you look at the reports out there and, and people who've spoken to other other people who were part of this group. I mean, he was their leader. He was the guy that was coming in and giving them all this information. It's not entirely clear that they understood what they were getting, uh, but certainly this was a person who they looked up to, who was coming into this chat group, giving them information. But at, po- at times, what's really interesting is that they weren't even interested in what he was saying, and he would get so angry at them, and he would say, come on, guys, you got to pay attention 
to what I'm they saying. They also didn't understand the acronyms. So he was typing, he was using a lot of the acronyms as they use in the military. Yes. And the, his friends in there were like, well, what's this? Right. Well, you know, it's all gobbledygook to them. And he had to start to kind of educate them on that. Yeah, and it kind of showing off, you know? He's like, look what I know, look what I have. And, you know, look, the concern here is that there are indications that, you know, he had anti-government views, that this group, which, you know, he would talk about racial issues and racist things, and he would talk about uh, guns, and they would talk about, obviously, video games. This was all on Discord, and the whole group got together because of video games. Yeah. Um, Arlette, isn't it incredible that he could access these yeah. national security secrets? He's 21 years old. I mean, he was described, I know that you say that it was deeper than just an IT guy, but they've sort of downplayed his role in this. It doesn't sound like something, somebody who should be able to be able to get his, their hands on this. Yeah, you know, there's so many thousands of government officials who go through these security clearance processes uh, so that they could have access to this classified information. But it does raise questions about what exactly those reviews are like and how someone could just so easily take these types of materials and documents and disseminate them with the public. Now, I know the Pentagon, you know, has already started to limit um, some of the um, sharing of classified information as they're going through this review at this time to see how to try to prevent crises like this from happening again. But it's just We've seen this over and over again when it, you think about Edward Snowden and <clears throat> Chelsea Manning. Can I, just say, can I just say one thing on that point? You know, one of the things that came after 9-11 was this view that the intelligence agencies needed to be better about sharing information, that that would make the U.S. much, much safer. So after 9-11, more people got access to classified mm -hmm. information. And I think there's a worry now in the intelligence community that because of this leak, they're now going to restrict it. They're going to say, okay, who absolutely, absolutely needs to know this information? How can we limit the number of people who have access to the information in order to prevent leaks? But the fear is that that ends up making the US less safe. So then you have to walk that very fine balance. That's a really good point. And I think, so other intelligence agencies, whether it's the CIA and the NSA, and then you know parts of the FBI, um, sort of treat this information more securely. That's what, you know, people who cover this issue and cover intelligence, say the Pentagon in particular has a problem, a bigger problem than any of the other agencies, because they have to disse disseminate this to so many different people. This airbase where this 21-year-old worked is an intelligence collecting part of the military. They deal with drones. They deal with cybersecurity. He's a systems engineer. He's the IT guy. He's got to make sure that all those computers and all those systems are running. He has no business looking at this stuff, mm -hmm. but he has access to it because he has access to the systems. So that's the problem. Like Snowden, similar. But you know, Snowden and the Chelsea motive Manning, is so different. Right. Different, yeah, different yeah, motivations. Yeah. Um, Shimon, sorry, uh, Harry, let me just move on to this other crime story that we want to get to because there's a development. So this uh, Louisville, the yeah. Louisville mass shooter, his family is saying that they want to have his brain examined. Why? So they're concerned. Look, they're looking for answers. They're trying to figure out, is there something that led him to do this, right? Because his mother that. had no idea. I mean, when we heard on the 911 call, yes. his mother said he's never been violent. He's a good kid. Right. He doesn't have a gun. Right. All of that turned out I mean, not to be true. There were mental health issues. But so now the family is saying when he was a kid, when he was uh, in eighth grade, he had some concussions. Uh, he had two at some point in the eighth grade. Then he had one in high school. He was an athlete. He was playing basketball. So now they're concerned and they're asking questions that 
could something as a result of that Mm -hmm. have led to this, this kind of mental health issue, CTE, right? It's a chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right? And so look, we see this in football players, Mm. right? Harry, you know, and so this is what they're now looking at to see if that in any way contributed to what he did here. You know, I think this family is just desperate for answers to for why their son would behave like I, this. I, I mean, I could, I can only imagine what a parent has to go through mm-hmm. in this type of situation, right? We oftentimes look at it from the side of, you know, if your child dies at the hands of something, you say, oh, what could I have done? I, you know, and and you just think you just all of these things. You know, a parent is supposed to out is supposed to die before the child, but on this other end, right? What could I have done differently that my son might not have done this? Yeah. I'm just going, how do you live with that? I, I almost have to feel like there's sort of this guilt that's going on here. Oh, I'm sure. It I'm just, sure. I mean, the, the, the family, particularly if they had no warning sign other than that he was struggling with mental illness. I mean, we heard that, you know, that phone call last night, right? Where it was like, he won't harm anyone. He's a good boy. Well, clearly not. But maybe she knew a different version of him before whatever it was that happened that caused him to do these things. But I just have a larger question for Shimon here. You know, we were talking about this last night and we were speaking, you know, I I couldn't, I thought we were coming in and we were going to talk about Nashville and said we're talking about Louisville. And these things happen week after week after week. And I'm just wondering as someone who covers this, you know, how the heck do you keep your head on straight? (laughs) Look, I think certainly the last year, right? So we're talking from last year to now, there's been a lot of mass shootings and I've covered almost, I think, all of them at this point. Nothing bigger for me personally than Uvalde, right? I've invested a lot of time in that. We're approaching a year. It's hard because when another mass shooting happens, it brings me back to the time when I was in Uvalde. And when I talk to those families, it brings back that horrible day. And part of it as a reporter, this story has been very different because I've been closer to a lot of the families than I have ever been on any story in Uvalde. Mm -hmm. And also because I have seen things that no one should ever see. And that stays with me. Body camera footage, kids that were shot, uh, kids that sadly died in horrific injuries, um, bloody, messy hallway, seeing officers reacting to once they get inside the room and seeing the kids who died. And how do you Um, keep your sanity? Well, I mean, talk a lot about it. You know, I mean, I have moments where I'm, I'm very down and I get sad and sure I cry and I, and, and I feel terrible for these families because it's so unfair. This should never have happened. It should never happen to any of these families. Um, it's hard because, you know, I want to, I wish there was more I could do, right? As a person, I, I just wish there was more I can do, but there's really not much more I can do. And Uvalde, the thing is, I'm still living with that every day because mm. the families still call me every day. And there's still things going on that really are not right, that are unjust. And I can't do everything, but I do live with guilt sometimes, honestly, because I feel like, you know, if I'm not there, if I'm not covering the story, I feel bad. I'm like, something happens. It's Sometimes it's very small, but I feel like maybe I can make a difference if I was there. Yeah, oh and, and you are doing by continuing to yeah. report on it. And I, I just went to Uvalde for one day when President Biden went, and I just remember people saying, we don't want to be forgotten. We don't want people to move on. And mm-hmm. what you do <clears throat> ensures that it's not forgotten because you continue to push and you continue to share their stories. It's, um, yeah, it's been, you know, the, the, there are nights when, you know, I think about it a lot and I think about the families. But it's it's harder when it ha- keeps happening oh my because it just 
comes back. And then like last night, listening to those 911 calls, you know, I listened to all the 911 calls in Uvalde and the screams mm. from the God. teachers who couldn't do anything to help these kids. And then when I heard the woman screaming yesterday, it kind of brought me back to that moment. Um, well, Shimon, I mean, as somebody, uh, I know I speak for all of our viewers as well, who's watched you this whole year, particularly all the time you've spent in Uvalde, you have brought accountability to that story that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You have chased down local officials to demand answers, and you didn't leave. I mean, as Arlette says, you didn't leave like so many other cameras did after that, and you have brought them accountability. You can't, you can't solve it all. Yeah. But, you know, I have a team that I do this with, but I also think as an organization, what CNN has allowed our, my team to do here is what made this, you know, kind of happen and why I think this is what journalism should be and why I think um, why it happened, you know, and why we, we've been able to have such success. And people who trusted us there in Uvalde as a journalist, they, they allowed us into their homes, but the sources and the people that we made friends with opened up to us and gave mm-hmm. us information that really put their lives in jeopardy, but they felt that justice needed to be done. But Alison's right. Sorry, I know we have to move on. Alison's right. I mean, the fact that you focused on that story, the fact that you brought so much attention to it, the fact that you really fought for accountability. I mean, I got emotional. Obviously, you know, I'm not from the U.S. I actually just became a U.S. citizen, but just thank you. But just sort of being in this country and seeing what's happening in a place like Uvalde, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. And just thank you so much for all the work that you have done, especially when it came to you know, making sure you got answers about why those police officers waited one hour, why they waited one hour, which is, I just, I can't even think about it. It's going to make me emotional, but Shimon, you've done great work. Yeah. Um, Thanks for explaining all that, Shimon. All right. We're going to be right back. Many more stories to cover. The Supreme Court has until midnight central time tomorrow to rule on an emergency filing from the Justice Department over abortion medication. Overnight, a federal appeals court froze parts of a Texas judge's ruling from last week that would have suspended the FDA's approval of an abortion drug. Arlette Sines has been reporting on all this. So Arlette, tell us what happens tomorrow. Yeah, so really the clock is ticking and these next really 24 to 26 hours are going to be critical. The Justice Department wants the Supreme Court to intervene. They do not like this decision that came out of that Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which said that they're keeping that FDA approval of Mifepristone in place, but they're issuing and following through with some restrictions from that federal judge down in Texas. I was talking to people at the White House today and they are very troubled by the fact that these restrictions could go into effect. And essentially what this would do, I I think we have a graphic uh, with some of these items. Uh, one thing it would do is it would stop any um, uh, ability to get Mifepristone through the mail. That is going to severely impact telehealth services, which is increasingly a way that some people are trying to get access to this medication abortion. Secondly, it really narrows the window of when exactly you can use this from 10 weeks to seven weeks. All of this is of concern to the White House as they are just thinking about the potentially I don't, I don't want to put a number on it, but like how many women and girls this could affect um, who wouldn't have access to this medication abortion pill. So the Justice Department is hoping that the Supreme Court will move quickly to 
they want them essentially to freeze this whole thing while this appeals process plays out. But I think with the Supreme Court, we all know it's hard yeah. to predict what and when exactly. <laughs> and then what happens? Let's say if they right. don't. Yeah. I mean, look what happened, you know, Roe v. Wade, right? Like, so what happens? What 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 is the Justice Department? What is the White House ultimately going to do? You know, one of the things with with this story that I have found very interesting is that States are kind of taking action now about the governors of the states who are who are stockpiling this drug just in case they're ordered uh, to stop making it. So they're now stockpiling it um, all all across the country. Um, the other thing is that I don't understand this thing has been you know was approved what twenty plus years ago. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, some judge comes in and says, "Yeah, this disapproval process. Yeah, something's." Something stinks here, sort of, and says, I'm, no, we're not doing this. Yeah, and that's the argument, you know, from the government is this has been approved for 23 years at this point, And there's this big question that they're raising that says, well, if you're going to question this approval of a drug from 23 years ago, it completely opens the door right. to right. people questioning it's, it's other a big problem medications. That could potentially be a big problem for the FDA, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, just talk about the potential, or maybe it was intended consequence of overturning Roe v. Wade, Right. I mean, that was the law of the land for 50 years. You throw it out the window, who knows what might exactly happen next? And I think we're kind of seeing that right now, right? Yes, but furthermore, not, I mean, not just in terms of abortion, Correct. but in terms of all of Everything. other medications. Yes. Totally. And, and medications like medications for, for example, COVID-19, medications for people who are transitioning, they could come under fire as well. But I think what's interesting is that uh, the person who has done more to limit women's rights to an abortion in this country in terms of the makeup of the Supreme Court, Donald Trump, has been the most silent on this issue. I think it's, I think that is fascinating. Harry whenever, like he's ready to go. Oh my gosh, whenever he's asked <laughs> yeah. by reporters, he just sort of ties himself into knots trying to avoid talking about this because he understands that this is a losing issue for Republicans. And is Normally, it Harry? It absolutely is. I mean, we got polling on this, you know, about the idea that a federal court would ban this abortion pill from, you know, going to effect. What was the opposition to this ruling? Look at this. 70 percent oppose a ruling like this. And it's the rare time in which a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats agree on this particular issue. Donald Trump may be a lot of things, but he's not a moron. He understands what's going on in the, in the politics of this. This is a losing issue for Republicans. They just had a midterm election in 2022, right, in which Joe Biden, the incumbent Democratic president, had an approval rating in the low 40s, and yet it was perhaps the best midterm election for the incumbent party since 1934. So Republicans realize what this is politically. Democrats realize what so, this is politically, and we're going to see what happens. They're focused on the primaries, though. They're focused yes, on the yeah. primaries. That is the goal right now, and that's why they're trying to rally the base. So you see what's happening with Ron DeSantis. He's about to sign that legislation in terms of six weeks. Um, Tim Scott is coming out talking about potentially supporting a federal ban 20 weeks. They're focused on the base and on the primaries. What they don't understand, or I guess they do understand this, <laughs> but they're not, they're not really focused on it right now, is that, of course, after the primaries comes the general, and that's where they're going to be punished. And how, and how many very conservative Republicans lost very winnable seats uh, last year, especially in Senate races, right? Pennsylvania, Arizona, the list goes on, Georgia. Yeah. The list goes on and on and on. But yet in Florida, I mean, Governor DeSantis signed a six-week ban. Yeah. 
I, I mean, it's really going to make Florida one of the most restrictive states in the country when it comes to abortion. Uh, but Ron DeSantis can go and sell that to people in a primary. Uh, it'll be interesting because people are looking for ways for Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis to kind of differentiate themselves uh, from each other. This might be one of those issues. But as Harry and Zane were talking about, it's going to be a troubling issue for Republicans heading into a general election when we saw the way that abortion rights really helped Democrats uh, prevent the red wave that so many people had been predicting in these past midterms. You have suburban women, uh, you have many men who are speaking up and saying this is a right that, that women uh, should be having. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Republican Party uh, positions themselves as they come out yeah, of a primary. That's what I was, I was in my head. That's what I was thinking. Okay, so what's going to happen as we get closer to the general election? Are more Republicans going to come out? And I mean, are they going to change their tune? Is, are things going to, is anything going to be different? I, the one thing I'll note is when Donald Trump won in 2016, he was seen as more moderate than Hillary Clinton was. But the percentage of Americans who see Donald Trump as, quote unquote, very conservative has risen 30 points since then. He's seen as far more conservative, in part because of what he did as president. So I'm not quite sure that his tries to sort of tack towards the middle will necessarily be sort of bought by the American voter. But of course, we'll wait and see, right? Thank you all very <laughs> much. All right. So how many of us define ourselves by our jobs? Harry has some new reporting on how the number of Americans who say their job gives them their identity is changing. Hmm, he's gonna explain all of that. <laughs> like you're talking to each other. Well done. Uh, so what do you do? Do you get that question whenever you meet someone new? What do you do? Well, the Wall Street Journal is out with a new article titled, Stop Telling Everyone What You Do For A Living. <laughs> CNN's Harry Enten loved this piece so much that he started digging into the numbers and he found that 45% of people say their job gives them a sense of identity, but that number has steadily declined since the 1980s. Okay, so Harry, tell us who de still defines themselves by their jobs. I feel like you do. I definitely <laughs> no, I, I know who, everyone who lives in Washington, D.C. Oh, oh, that's why I had to get out of that town, right? But every time, so I lived there for a couple of years. It's the biggest thing, yeah. right? It's like, what do you do? Who do you, you know, it's like the first question. You, the any first social question, event, yeah. right? You, know, right? you know, you gotta sit like this and yes. you, you do the thing <laughs> and you know, oh, we all shop at the Brooks Brothers store <laughs> together. It's fantastic. Where you shop. That's exit. No, I don't shop. I have my girlfriend shop for me now, at least, because otherwise I would honestly just that's wear quite a girlfriend. Yeah, otherwise I just wear the clothes that my mom got me when yeah. I was in high school. So oh, you, you definitely, I've seen you in that outfit. definitely outfit. Upgraded, upgraded since she's been in your life. Yeah, you Absolutely. Have. You have. Absolutely. You're not traipsing around the office with like a blanket <laughs> and you're basically like uh, sweat Sweatpants? Uh, although, Sweatpants yeah. although I did use Berman's blanket earlier today to take a nap. Either way, um, let's just say that it's the people who have the highest education levels who have been defining, you know, their lives by what their job is. So postgraduates are far more likely than, say, high schoolers, some college grad. College grads are near postgrad degree, but it does seem the longer that you've been in school, the more likely you sort of say that their job gives you a sense of identity. And I think that kind of makes some sense, right? Because you sort of invested more time in school to get that degree. Um, and maybe you spend more time at work, in all honesty. Like my mother, like, right, a pediatrician, how much time did she spend at work? My goodness gracious. 
Thankfully, she did because she was able to give me a good education with, with the money that she made. But still, I, I think that when you look at the numbers, there's no doubt the longer you've spent in school, the more likely you are that you say that your job gives you a sense of identity. Zane, don't you feel like all of us here also define ourselves by our work? I mean, what? not solely. What? But you know what? I don't actually think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's fine to take a little bit of professional pride in what you do. I have, um, I have a bit of a strange trajectory to coming to CNN. I mean, most people who end up as an anchor or a reporter at CNN usually work in news, local news perhaps, not everybody, but they may work in local news for about 10 years or so. Um, two years before I got the job as a correspondent at CNN, I was working as a receptionist for about four years, four and a half years actually. In what kind of office? Yeah. It was a production company. Okay. And, you know, my job was obviously to answer the phone and then also to validate people's parking. And I can, I can tell you, first of all, <laughs> can I just say, you can learn a lot about someone based on how they yeah. treat the receptionist. Mm -hmm. You know, some people would come in and they would make conversation with me um, and I would be so touched. But other people would just literally teach me, treat me like I was invisible. And so I learned a few things from that whole experience. And also, you know, when I would go out, people would ask me, well, what do you do for a living? And I would say, I work at a production company. And then they would say, well, what, what do you do at the production company? Um, and I would say, I'm the receptionist. And oftentimes I would notice that their reaction towards me would change. You know, they wouldn't be as, I was not as useful to them. Mm. This is in California where everyone was obviously. Exactly. So everyone's in the movie industry. And so it was really tricky. But I think that now, you know, after, you know, having that job for four years, and of course, there's nothing wrong with being a receptionist. I just think that for me personally, um, I wanted something different. Um, now coming to this particular job, I take such pride, yeah. I take such pride in what I do. I remember, you know, for the first, I mean, still now, but certainly for the first few years of my time at CNN, I used to be so happy on Sundays because I get to go to work on Monday, you know? And when you have your dream job, and I'm not just, you know, <laughs> saying this. <laughs> but it is true. So I think there's nothing wrong with taking a little bit of No, I mean, life. I don't think you should. Like, obviously, I think as journalists, you know, we take a lot of pride in what we do. Of course. Um, but, you know, I could see where in some situations, you know, you, people sometimes feel, oh, you're, you're talking about work again. Why are you talking about work again? And you get these situations of like, okay, can you put your phone down? Can you stop working? Uh, you know, we have very demanding jobs, so it's much, so it's much different. But people do like to hear about our jobs oh also. God, well, so, I mean, that's part of it out yeah. in public. We do talk about our jobs yeah. because people ask a lot of questions about it. And Arlette... But sometimes I'm like, I don't want to talk about work all the time, <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you about work either. But I don't know. I remember going out to dinner a, a few months ago with someone for the first time. They're like, well, what do you do for fun? And I like literally oh. was blank. <laughs> because I, was just I like, hate that question. I know. It's, a, it's a really hard question. And after the fact, I'm like, I'm an interesting person. What are your hobbies? You feel like you have to come up with something. I, know, that, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I think I was just like, I work a lot. But like, I also enjoy hanging out with friends and I like working out and I like wine and like... And, and but I need to work on a hobby. Right. You need to come up with something. Yeah. You need to have an elevator hobby. I do. <laughs> and I haven't, that was two months ago, and I haven't come up with a, like a hobby pitch. But oh I'm going to work on it. <laughs> That's great. All right. Thank you all very much. So thousands of protesters in France are angered by the government's plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Zane is going to explain what happens tomorrow when a French court weighs in on this battle. We'll be right back. Big news for us.
Violent protests breaking out across France for a 12th straight day. Demonstrators venting their anger at President Macron's plans to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. And tomorrow is the big decision day. Zane, tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. I wish I, I could look into my crystal ball for you, but... Um, the Constitutional Council has a couple of choices um, in terms of uh, what they're going to decide on. One is whether or not there should be a referendum. But the key decision is on the constitutionality of the bill. Um, there's a few scenarios that could play out. One is that they could just say, yes, you know, this is constitutional. Macron, thumbs up, go ahead. Or they could say, yes, it's constitutional, but we're going to tweak it slightly. Or they could reject it. In terms of what I think is going to happen... I would say the likely scenario is that they accept it, but possibly they tweak it. So you're going to see these protests continue for the time being. I think what's really interesting, especially for an American audience, is how the French view work. We were just talking about work, yeah. how the Americans view work, how the French view work. It is so different. Tell um, us. Like, how is, it, <laughs> yeah. how is it different? Well, I think that for a lot of, I mean, I would say that it's the polar opposite in that in France, work is a means to an end. You know, your quality of life is so much more important than making money. And even if you don't necessarily have that much money, if you, even if you aren't rich, you still deserve a healthy and good quality of life. That is what the French believe. And I think that the reason why people are, it's actually interesting because I have a very close friend um, who's American who works in Paris and she always, um, talks to you about the typical French work day. You know, you get into the office at 9.30. Mm, wow. 10.30, there's a break. There's a coffee break. Is there you a know? croissant? <laughs> <in the office laughs> break? I hope so. And by the way, you can't eat at your desk. You know, it's frowned upon to eat at your desk, right? So then there's a lunch no, break. No, here you to eat at your <laughs> desk. Because <laughs> you're still working. Like, and then you're having a lunch break from 12 to 2. And then there's another coffee break wow. at 3.30. You know what I mean? They just really value the quality of life. That's not a bad thing. No, no. You know, I think that, you know, sounds delicious. <laughs> uh, Harry, what, what about in the U.S.? Do, yeah. do you have uh, research on how Americans feel about their retirement age? You know, I, I, the French don't like what's happening over there. They should come over here and see how they <laughs> oh like it. Goodness. All right. I mean, my goodness, we've seen so, the retirement. We'll get lots of protests. Yeah, right? that's, that's, exactly. You know, we've seen, you know, Americans retiring later and later and later. And what do we see here? You know, Americans take on raising the retirement age when, you know, you get full Social Security benefits, raising it from 67 to 70. Look at that. 78% of Americans oppose it. Just 17% support it. Now, that has not obviously stopped some politicians from yeah. offering that up. But the fact of the matter is Americans don't like the fact that they're retiring later, but they're not at this particular point going out on the streets and causing a lot of trouble for the incumbent president. Because mm -hmm. we're working too hard to go out. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's right. That's right. No croissants for us. Harry's, right. And Harry's never retiring. No, but I think, oh, I, I, mean, think what's, I think what's also interesting is that this goes... This goes well beyond just the retirement age. This is about, I mean, a lot of people loathe Emmanuel Macron. Well, that's, you know, that and was the other thing. I was wondering if this is more yeah, about him. Than totally. They see him as arrogant, you know, the way he went about trying to shove the legislation through. And it's also, I think, quite interesting how differently he was perceived when he first came into the office. He was seen as this breath of fresh air. He's basically created a political party from scratch, which is very hard to do in a, in a country that's divided, you know, based on left and right. He created a centrist party from scratch. Not only did he win, but he won twice. Um, but he also, especially right before the second time he won, he promised everyone, listen, I'm going to tell you now, if you vote for me, I'm going to do pension reform. I'm just letting you know. By voting for me, you cannot say that you're surprised when I raise the retirement age. So I think there are some people who say, look, everyone saw this coming. 
you know, everybody saw this coming. But I think a lot of people on the ground in France will say, we didn't actually vote for Macron. We voted against Le Pen. That, that was exactly how, what I how, was. I was like, I was watching the footage today of the protests. I mean, it, it was something, you know, it was just. Oh, so yeah, it's violent. You've been with us for weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And is it effective? Like, do you, like, do people there feel like this yes. is going to really? Well, yes and no. So the thing about social unrest in France is that generally, I think compared to other countries, we're looking at some of the images right now. Um, generally, it actually is more effective in France than in other countries. You think about the history, 1789, storming of the Bastille. You think about the fact that social unrest led to the collapse of the monarchy in that country. Um, and the, you know, people who live and work and who are educated in France are taught that history from such a young age that listen, you can go into the streets and you can actually change the entire country. Um, I think it was about 15 years ago or so, they were, the president at the time in 2006 was trying to change the law to make it easier to fire French people, French workers. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing, how difficult, how easy it is to fire people. He, he was trying to create a law whereby anyone under the age of 26 who'd been working at a company for less than two years um, could be fired without any reason whatsoever. Mm. And people went out into the streets. I kid you not. It was bad. And very quickly, he said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do this. And, and, and so they're used to that. They're used to getting their way, essentially. That's really interesting context. And then, Arlette, there's our Congress, yes. which let's remind everybody what happened during the State of the Union address when President Biden sort of seized on Republicans starting to express their, I guess, dislike of his plan. But this was about Social Security during the State of the Union. Listen to this. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. <laughs> so that was they they were objecting to how he characterized their position. Yeah, and then you know he kind of go to them a little bit more and say, "Okay, are you going to commit to not putting social security cuts on the table?" And they say yes, and so he's like, "Okay, great." Like, but I mean, this issue of social security is going to be a huge issue in the coming years. I think the, the trustees uh, of social security said that they're going to face solvency issues within the next decade. Um, but there's certainly different ideas about how to go about handling social security. You know, you had the Republican study committee, uh, a more conservative group in um, the Congress that said that you should be raising the age from 67 to 70 or 67 to 70 for retirement. That's not something that they're pursuing at this time. But I I don't know. Like I think about Social Security and like when I'm going to get to a period that I'm ready to retire, what's Social Security going to look like? Yeah, at that a point? very good question. But that's the level of unrest we have in our country. What, what we just showed right yeah, now. Between. Uh, all right, everybody, <laughs> stand by because up next on The Lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what developments they'll be looking for on the stories that they're covering or anything really that they want to talk about. Whatever they're looking forward to, even in life. Mm. That's what we're going to get. Good. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, our wonderful panel of reporters are going to tell us what they're keeping an eye on. We'll call it On the Lookout. Okay, Zane. Um, I'm going to be watching, this is over the, the coming weeks, by the sure. way. Okay. Um, King Charles in the UK just launched an investigation into the royal family's ties to the slave trade, which I think is a very big deal. That is a big deal. I mean, I don't know necessarily whether he would 
do that without 100% knowing what he was going to find. I think that the royal family got a lot of flack for their treatment of Meghan Markle. And I think that this is their way of showing that, showing some humility, showing that they are listening to all Britons. I do think in terms of the outcome, because obviously you get the information, what do you do with it? I think in terms of the outcome, it could open up a can of worms for him in terms of rep reparations. Um, so that's what I'm watching. We've got a few weeks to the coronation. So that's really interesting. But you're right. He must know something before just wading into this um, sticky wicket. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much, Mo. So the Dominion trial, obviously, this is the Fox News Dominion trial jury selection underway. You know, I think the judge had hoped maybe it'd be wrapped up by tomorrow, but it looks like it's going to head into Monday. So, you know, starting next week, certainly it's going to get really interesting once testimony there starts. So we'll continue with jury selection tomorrow. Monday, we'll see. We can see our first witness and that's going to be significant. Uh, and then uh, that that's going to keep us busy next week, I think. And the other thing I think we need to do is start looking for new pillows. You don't like that pillow? <laughs> <laughs> this well, clashes with my outfit, You know, this actually. has been a thing for me the What's last the two days. <clears throat> it's not comfortable. Here. Okay. <laughs> I've been very uncomfortable. All right. Well, but thank you. This has been a, a great two days, and um, thank you. Thank so, you. It's been <laughs> thank great. You. Thank um, you. I'll find better pillows. Uh, Harry. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, God bless them, uh, have not lost a game so far this year in the Major League Baseball season. If they win one more game, they will, in fact, set the record for most wins to start out a season since the beginning of the 20th century. And as a person who hates the New York Yankees, I love seeing their chance of winning the World Series <laughs> up ever himself. so slightly couldn't help every himself. single day. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, Arlette. I uh, understand this has to do with Lady Gaga. Go. Yes, it does. Oh. President Biden made a very important appointment today, and that is that he named Lady Gaga as the co-chair of the President's Accounts Commission on oh. Arts and Humanities. This is a group Ooh. that advises the president on all things cultural. There's a host of other celebrities like George Clooney, Jennifer Gardner, Shonda Rhimes, Kerry Washington, who are all part of this group. Uh, it actually was disbanded during the Trump administration because people who were on that committee were really upset about the way that he handled those clashes down in Charlottesville. But what's really interesting is that Joe Biden and Lady Gaga have actually like been friends for some time. They have? He Does she come to her? the White House? Like, will she perform? Um, like, what I don't happens? know if she's going to perform okay. at the White House. I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, but, you know, he introduced her at the Oscars yeah. back in, I think, 2016. Mm, they worked she's... on um, ever, trying to combat... I've gone to see her. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing yeah. show. Fantastic. Yeah. Like, Little Monsters. I, I just yeah. like that she, that Lady Gaga is an advisor to President Biden. Yeah. I like this. Yeah, That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Thank you for alerting us to that. All right, everybody, be sure to tune in to CNN this morning tomorrow. New York City Mayor Eric Adams will be there to respond to GOP Congressman Jim Jordan's planned field hearing on New York crime. All right, thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.